Okay, we're going to begin here at the bottom of Yunud Bet, you know, by the second set of two dots up from the bottom, which is Amarav Bar Machsia, Amarav Chama Bar Guy Amarav. So here we're going to have a series of memorot. It's kind of like brachot again, a series of memorot uh, from this group, and they're not necessarily connected in any way, except the fact that they're authored by all by the same person. So first is Lolam Ayishane Adam Beno Ben Abanim. Person should not favor one of his children over the others. Because of the weight of two cellar worth of milat. Milat is either silk or very fine wool. That Yaakov gave to Yosef above his other brothers. Of his brothers were then jealous of him. And then ended up. That ended up in a story that results in everybody ending up in Mitzrayim. So a couple of things to ask over here. Tosafot asked the most obvious question. Wasn't there already a promise to Avram Avinu and Brit bin Abtarim that they were going to be enslaved by another nation? Why is this the reason that you're being given over here rather than the basic reason that it's in Brit bin Abtarim? So Tosafot says something interesting over here. He says, Afogav Debalav Hochi Nigzar. Despite the fact that this was nigzar, irrespective of what happened here, nevertheless, nigzar lehem Maybe it wouldn't have been so bad. So what, what does that mean? We know that Ben Abtarim says that Bnei Yisrael are going to be in Mitzrayim for 400 years. We know they're not in Mitzrayim for 400 years. What do we say? It says, The Gemara Seder Olam counts that based on the birth of Yitzchak. From the time that Yitzchak is born, until the time that Bnei Yisrael leave Mitzrayim. So we have periods of time where the Bnei Yisrael are not enslaved, but they're just Geri Ezarachan. So Tosavot says, you could have the same thing here. The fact is that they went down to Mitzrayim, and therefore they were enslaved in Mitzrayim. That's something that didn't have to be that way. It could have been Geri Ezarachan, like the times of Yitzchak and Yaakov. They were also considered a part of the Brit Bin Abtarim. So the nature of what the promise that happens in Brit Bin Abtarim actually will change depending on this situation. And this situation actually caused them to be enslaved. The other thing to note over here is that it says, which is a very small amount of cloth. It's really not enough to make a tonit pasim. And we know that the difference between Yaakov, what he gave to Yosef and the other brothers, was that he gave him a tonit pasim, which is a whole cloak. It's not just a little bit of material. So Rashi over here says, that can't be an exact number. If we're talking about a whole cloak, we're talking about something that's of significant value. There's around the palm of his hand. He did not give him the entire cloak, but he gave him the material around his hand. Rashi later on also, Rashi and Daf Lamad Bet, you can see there, there's a Rashi, Devir Maskil Pisad Bar also discusses it, that about being of the palm of his hand which is very interesting, that he had a silk wrap or he had some sort of fine wool that went around his hands. The best explanation I've heard is that the tonet pasim is an entire cloak and everybody had a tonet. What was extraordinary about Yosef's tonet was that it was a tonet pasim and it reached a pisata yad. It reached until his palm of his hands. Shul just mentioned now that maybe the cuffs or the sleeves were made out of this fine wool of silk. But what's the difference between having a regular tonet that is short-sleeved and a ketonet that reaches until the palms of your hand. So Rav Yolbinun suggested that's the difference between being a supervisor and a worker. Right? The workers have to roll up their sleeves and they have to get involved. The supervisor doesn't do the work, he just stands around. And the cloak, and it's very true in their day, in that very hierarchical society, that the people who wear the cloaks and the long sleeves, that was an indication of someone who 
didn't have to work. And that was also someone who didn't have exposure to the sun. was also considered to be someone of higher class because they weren't out in the fields working. So the fact that he had long sleeves was an indication from Yaakov that he was going to be the supervisor. And that's what we know. Yaakov sends Yosef out, go check on your brothers in Shem. And that he was the supervisor and that's what the brothers resented. That he was made into the supervisor and he wasn't one of them that had to work. And the difference being this small amount of material between having short sleeves and long sleeves. Alright, so now we have another statement from this group. A person should try to find and settle in a city that is newer, that is not so old. Because it's newly settled, it has less sins involved with the city. So this is actually related to this week's parsha, because we're going to see in a second. When Lot is leaving Stone Belmore, he's running away, and the Malachim tell him to run to Elahara, go up to the mountain. He says, do me this favor. I don't want to go into the mountain. I'd rather go to this place nearby. A place called Tzoar. Vihi Mitzar. So Mitzar, my Krova, what does it mean that it was close by? That in Ayir, so Krova, Lanusham, Avi, Mitzar, close by and small. Ilema Krova, Dimikarva. What does it mean Krova means nearby? Bezuta. And it's small. Gemara says, Vahaka Chazula. If you take a look at it, they would have known that that was the fact. I mean, that's not information that he's giving them. They didn't know. They're right there. They're opposite this city. So the Malachim obviously knew that this was a small city and that it was nearby. But why is he feeding them that information? So the Gemara says, Because it was newly settled, its sins were of a smaller nature. It didn't have built up a debt of sins yet. So Amr Avin, Micro, how do we know that from the Pasuk? Let me run there. So now, now in Gematria is Nun Vechad, 51. Vishel's dome, and stone was settled Nun Bet, not 52 years. And that is based on Pashad Noach. Pashad Noach, it says that Aver names his son Peleg, because in his years the land was divided or split up. The reference to being to the Migdal Bavel. After Migdal Bavel, the people were dispersed over the land. And Aver names his son based on that, a Peleg. So there are really only two choices. If he named his son Peleg, the two possibilities of why he named his son Peleg is either because it happened then and then his son is born. So when his son is born, he named him Peleg. Or the other possibility is that when his son died, that was the time that Nitpal Gaharetz. So either it was named after the incident that's taking place. The problem with that is that his younger brother, Yaktan, already is there after Migdal Bavel, and he's named as part of the nations that split up afterwards. So that means his younger brother was already born prior to Migdal Bavel. So it can't be that he was named for the incident, because he's born prior to the incident. So the other possibility is it's the end of his life. The, the middle ground, which is also possible, is that it happened sometime in his lifetime. There, Seydor Olam Rabba says, the Chumash wouldn't give you information, but you can't do anything with it. If it's the middle of his life, you have no idea when in his life it happened, gives you no additional information. So rather, the Seder Olam Rabbah says that Avery was a Navi, and he, based on his Nevu'ah, he knew that the end of his life, of Peleg's life, then Nitpagah And therefore, based on the end of Peleg's life, when Peleg dies, that's when Migdal Bavel happened. Once you do that, how old is Abraham at the time? Abraham, you do the calculations based on Parsha Noach, but Abraham is 48 years old at that time. 
So Avram was 48 years old at the time. We know when his stone Vamorah destroyed, the Malachim come to tell Abraham that he's going to have a child when he is 99 years old, that he'll have a child a year from now when he's 100. So Avram's 99, and at the same time, the Malachim come and destroy stone. So from 48 to 99 is 52 years. So that's how the Gemara calculates that it was 52 years from the time that Sodom is founded until the time that it is destroyed. And they say that Mitzar is less. Well, less than that. Again, it doesn't tell you how much less. The assumption being that it would be the minimum amount that's less, and that's one year less, so that was 51 years. That's the gematria that we just said in Maltana, when Lot says, I'm going to run away to there, now gematria is 51. So that's the gematria saying that Saddam was 52 years old, and Tzohar was 51 years old. Remember that when Avram is bargaining with Hashem, he says, 50 tzaddikim, and then he works his way down, and Rashi brings Chazal over there that he was talking about the cities. Stom was a metropolis. There were numerous cities there. There are actually five cities in this metropolis. And what ends up happening is, four of them are destroyed, and one of them is saved. So are. Here, the Chachamish does not tell us the names of the city. But, in the end of Sefer Tvarim, it does tell us what the names of those cities are, which is, Sdom, Vamorah, Adma, Utzvoim, are the four cities that were destroyed. Zawar is the one city that is not destroyed because Lot has to go there. He doesn't end up going there, but he does ask the Malachim to save that city in order that he can go there. So then the Gemara says, Vishavvatah, Chavav. And Sdom had 26 years apiece. Now, that has to do with, beginning of Parshat Lechacha, where Avram has the battle of the four kings and the five kings. Shtemisre Shana Abduet Kardala Omer. For 12 years, they were in servitude to Gdala Omer. Shloshisre Shana Meradu. So for 13 years, they rebelled. It's not in the 13th year they rebelled, but rather for 13 years they rebelled. Ubrabasre Shana. And then in the 14th year, they have the battle between the four kings and the five kings, and Avram defeats the four kings at that point, and then Stom is left to be free. So if you add up the years, you have Shtemesrei and 13, which is 25, and then you have the last year, the 26th year, which is the 14th year of the rebellion in which the battle takes place. That's 26 years. Out of 52, 26 years were in this state of, I would say, war or uneasiness, then the remaining 26 years were Bishalva. That's what the Gemara says, that... No, that's the, the other way around. The 26 years of Shavar, the latter 26 years. First 26 years are yeah, the... the pro- yeah. And the war. Right? And the war is all that time until Avram intervenes. Problem with that is, that, that Tosva points this out, Seder Ulam Rabbah says, Seder Ulam Rabbah ben ayin hei shana melachim. That Avram was 75 years old when he defeated the kings. So if Avram was 75 years old when he defeated the kings, we just said that area of stone was formed when Avram was 48. It gives you about 28 years. So Tosva gives a suggestion along the lines of what you just said, Shaul, which is that the first two years is also Bishavah. That's the only way you can reconcile between Seder Olam Rabbah saying that Avram 75 when this happens and the fact that the 26 years over here. Otherwise, Avram would be 73 when he fought the Milachim in that case. All right, next statement from Amar Rav Bar Machsia, Amar Rav Chamer Bagir Marav. Ko'ir shigagotah gevohim mibeta Knesset. Any city in which the Roofs of the houses are higher than the shore. In the end, it will be destroyed. Here, the Gemara is drawing a parallel or connection between the two parts of the Pasuk, which is, when we uplift the house of God, then, and to repair or to fix the areas that are destroyed. 
So the Gemara sees a correlation between the lifting or the rising of Beit Elokeinu and the rebuilding of that which is destroyed. And the opposite would be true as well, which is that if the Beit Elokeinu is not the Romeim, is not the highest point, then it's subject to being uh, destroyed. So, this is only true in houses. But if you're talking about the way Rashi translates Kushkushke Vavrure are Birinyot Umigdalim, one of those are aesthetic buildings that are simply there for their height, for their aesthetics. Umigdalim are the watchtowers of the city. They do not hinder this position, which is that we're talking about we don't want residences or even maybe commercial buildings to be higher. But if it's these small towers or these aesthetic parts of the buildings, that's fine. The way the Aruf translates Avrure is it's Avru Ari, which are the Chumata'ir, the walls of the city. The walls of the city and the watchtowers, which would also make more sense. Then you have things that are the security of the city, which are also the security of the shul, those are allowed to be higher than the shul. I ensured that the city of Matamaxia was not destroyed. He was the Rosh Hashiva there. Because I made sure that nobody built a house that was above the shul. So when it says that it was destroyed, the city, so he says that it wasn't that sin. That wasn't the cause of the problem of Matamaxia. Matamaxia was destroyed for... Another reason. The other thing to note is, is that the shul has to be there first in order for it to be a problem. A person can't bring a residence above the shul once the shul is already there. But if a person built a residence and then after when someone puts in a shul, you don't have to destroy all the houses that are higher than the shul in that location. A lot of these shuvim are done that way because the way the shuvim are allocated their space, they usually have the shul at the center, at the top of the mountain. So the shul is usually the highest point. In cities, it becomes, it's much more difficult. They don't, it, they don't do as well with that. The, the point here is not just simply, you know, the Gemara is saying something. It's a idea of respect and the idea of where you place your priorities. I mean, the Gemara here is taking it literally, but you also could take it in the figurative sense that the shul is the highest point of the community. That the shul, when it's the highest point, shows what's the most important part of the community. If you go to Gamla today, you can see that the city was built on the top of a mountain and it stretched down. So the wealthier people lived at the top of the mountain. The poorer people had to live down towards the sides of the mountain. Because the highest point in the city, where does all the, the rain and all the garbage goes downhill? So the poor get poorer and the rich get richer. I mean, if they live at the top of the city. The same thing would be true of the, putting a shul at the top of the city. In terms of giving respect to the shul and showing that as the priority and the most special point in the city is to have the shul at that point. So there could be some figurative meaning to that, not just a literal meaning. It's clear here that the Gemara is taken literally, but it also could have that figurative sense that the shul should be the center of the community and not the residents. There's a rule in Yerushalayim that no shul could be above the mosque, or that the highest point in the city was the mosque, and then the shul could be above it. And it's the same idea, that this sense of the focal point of the city. To say that a shul can't be above the height of a mosque is to say that who are the real rulers? What's the focal point of the city? It's the same idea. Amarav of Amarav Amarav Better, this is very, very interesting, better to be under Muslim rule than to be under, as Rashi says, Edom, Edomim, which means under, would suggest over here Christian rule, right? Christian medieval rule versus the Muslim rule. Better to be under the Christian rule or the Edomite rule and not Chavar. Chavar, it's here, it's not clear exactly what they are. Rashi claims, that these uh, Chavar were Umam ibn Parsim. They were some derivative of the Persians that uh, lived there, that were very difficult. Tosafot, on the other hand, says, Parsim hayu Bavel mimot Koresh. We know the Persians were already there in Bavel, the time of Koresh. 
Because Persian media overruns the Babylonian Empire at that time. And then become the central focus, the story of Purim. And the latter Nevi'im are dealing with the kings of Persian media, Koresh, Daryobesh, all those kings, not Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, who are the kings of Babel. So that can't be the explanation. But rather, these Havarim, Bimei Rabbi Yochanan, not to the Babel. They came in the time of Rabbi Yochanan. It's very late that they came there. Their time of the Amoraim, that they're showing up in Babel, a late addition then they were definitely foreigners or invaders that came in that were very difficult to deal with. And we have other stories in the Gemara with difficulties that they faced in terms of persecution and persevavodazara. And that, that a lot of times the Gemara or the Bishonim will know that's this group, group of Chavarim, that are the problem. Whether it's a rule on a global sense or whether it's a rule where an individual has to work for these people and that they're in charge. It's also, you'll see from the latter half, it sounds more like these are talking about individuals than greater rule. But over here it says, Better to be under a chavar and not a tamar chacham. Taka tamar chacham, lo taka yatom v'almana. Better to be under a tamar chacham, not a yatom v'almana. So Rashi notes in the latter two cases, these are people that if you cross them, they're going to make your life very difficult. A tamar chacham, if he gives you a bad look, we saw before that Rabbi Yochanan can turn you into a galat samot, can turn you into a pile of bones. And if you cross the tamar chacham, then you're going to be in trouble. So if you're working for them or you're under their rulership, then if you do something wrong, the retribution to you is going to be quick and forceful. And the same thing with the Atom Biyamana, which we know that the Torah tells us that if they call out to Hashem, Hashem is their protector, and He's going to come to their aid. So you don't want to do something that will cause the Atom Biyamana to be upset, and therefore your retribution will be quick and furious from Hashem. So that would indicate more that you're dealing with individuals. I think the same could be said about them on a global sense, that if they are running the cities, the rulers of the cities, you have the same problem, which is that, obviously, as rulers, then you have to interact with them, and they could be difficult to deal with, or the retributions could be difficult if they are crossed. Any sickness and not a stomach ailment. Now, they're going to have a number of words here. One is choli, then we're going to have ke'ev, and then we're going to have a michush, and all of these items are different types of sickness. Rashi translates each one of them. He says, a choli is choli aroch. That's something that is an extended uh, sickness, eh, a chronic or extended sickness. Then ke'ev, huolei chuba. Something that comes and goes. It comes in waves and then leaves. And then michush is chashashabam. It's felt uneasy feeling at some point in time, but not something that's continuous. So that's the list of items here. So he says, I'd rather ko choli, below choli me'ayim. So any sickness, but not something that is a continuous chronic problem with the stomach ailment. Ko ke'ev, any pain. Again, this is a pain that comes and goes, below ke'ev leif, and not heartache. Vekol michush, below michush arosh. And any temporary type of difficulty, but not a headache. So these are the things. He's giving you some sort of hierarchy. I'd rather not have any of these. Ko any bad that can happen, below yishara. And not having a bad woman over here, I'm assuming it means a bad wife. That, that could cause difficulty because that's something that it's always there, it's always present. If all the oceans were ink, and all the small bodies of water alongside of which the reeds grow were either quills or writing instruments, and the skies were the parchments, and all people with sofrim were scribes. There would not be sufficient from all that, that ink, that number of writing instruments, that amount of parchment, and that amount of sofrim, it would not be enough to write down 
on a regular day all the happenings in the world that Hashem is controlling. My Korah, what's the Pasuk? Amar Mesharshia, Shemaim Larom, Va'aretz Laumek, Va'leid Melachim Ein Cheker. From the sky above to the earth below, and the hearts of kings, Ein Cheker, no one can discern or investigate or understand what Hashem does. The idea being that all the wars and all the thoughts and all the things that are going on in the world, Hashem's controlling everything down to the minutia, and there wouldn't be sufficient amount of ink to, to just to write down what's happening. And obviously Hashem is in control of all of that. We use a similar type of phraseology when we say in Nishmat, and Shabbat, and Yom Tov. If you had all of these items, there wouldn't be sufficient praise in the world to give praise to Hashem for that which He does for us. Similar idea that's used. Akdamot uses the same thing also. This is called a Tanit Cholom. Someone has a bad dream. Fast afterwards is good, like like fire to kindling, or it's fire to something that burns quickly. This is the right thing to do. You've got to do it right away. Right after you had the bad dream, you got to fast. Yosef, that's true. Means that even though you're not allowed to fast on Shabbat, nevertheless here, because of the quote-unquote Pikuach Nefesh, the fact that it's so efficacious to fast the day after the dream, then we're allowed to fast even on Shabbat. The problem with that, we saw this before, is that if you fast on Shabbat, that's wrong. So then what you have to do is you shave tanit the tanito. You have to fast again because of the violation of Onik Shabbat that you fasted on Shabbat, so you have to actually fast twice. Rabbi Shua braid the Iklo the Bay Ravashi. He went to visit the basement, the house of Ravashi, Abdele Igla Tilta. They made for him a delicacy, an Igla Tilta. So here Rashi explains over here Igla Tilta is the the third born to this cow. This is the third born calf, which is the finest of the calves. Rashi says it over here. Other places in Shas, Rashi says this and rejects this explanation and says Iglatilta is a calf that's grown a third of its maturity. And when it's reached a third of its maturity, again, the meat or that uh, food is considered to be a delicacy. So here it was a special visit that he was making and they made him the finest food because he came for a visit. So they brought it before him. Amrulay, litomar midei, come and have a taste, you know, sit down and have some. Says, I'm fasting today, I can't have anything. So then he says, Don't you hold to what Rabbi Yehuda says? A person can borrow a fast and pay it back later. Meaning that you're not governed by that day itself. You could say, you know what, I'm not going to fast today, I'll make it up another day. So he says, No, 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 this is a specific type of fast. This is not just a personal fast. This is a fast for specifically for Chalom. Meaning that the day itself is important. The fact that you fast on the day itself is important. Therefore, I'm not going to break my fast and fast another day because it's important to me to fast today because of the bad dream that I had the previous night. So therefore, I'm going to pass up the delicacies that you are serving me. Now, the last piece here. says, the end of the Mishnah said that if they already began, not mafsik for tevila, but mafsikim l'kriyat shema. Where it says, "Va'atani le'reisha em mafsikim." The Mishnah already explained that all these items you're not supposed to start, but if you did start in mafsikim, you don't stop. And obviously, we're talking about tevila because that's what the Mishnah was discussing up until this point. So why does the Mishnah come back and say again, "Ain mafsikim for tevila"? It's redundant. It's not necessary. Where it says, The letter of the Mishnah is talking about something else totally different. It's not talking about tefillah at all. It's talking about divrei Torah, someone who's learning. Those tamidei chachamim that are asuk b'Torah, 
They stop for Kriyat Shema, but they don't stop for Tefillah. They don't stop for Davening. Again, one is Zmano Midoraita, and one is Zmano Midirabanan. So Kriyat Shema, which is Zman Doraita, they stop for. Something that is Tefillah, which is Zman Dirabanan, they don't stop. Abrab Yochanan, Loshanu, this is a very important qualification. Loshanu, Elokigon, Rabbishim Bayochai, Vechavirav, Shutoratan, Umunatan. It's only true of Rabbishim Bayochai and his compatriots that Torah is the entirety of their life. It is their profession, it's everything that they do. Avoka, and Anu, Mafsikim, the Kriyat Shema, Tefillah, but us, and here it's Rabbi Yochanan is speaking like us. We stop for Kriyat Shema Tefillah. Now Rashi says, what is it they mean like us? He says, well, we stop for our parnosa. We stop to do our regular activities. We do other things, and therefore, we should have to stop for Tefillah as well. So if we mafsikim toratenu l'umnatenu, if we're going to stop our Torah learning in order to practice our professions, certainly we have to stop for davening. If, we do, if it's good enough to stop for our own personal professions, then it's good enough to stop for davening to Hashem. But you see here that even Rabbi Yochanan doesn't think that his Torah is the same as Rabbi Shema Yochai, who living in the cave, all he did was learn Torah. He had nothing besides Torah. I mean, that's the threshold here. The threshold that we're talking about here is something that's an extreme. To say that you're not going to daven. Tosfet Asway, we just saw previously, and yesterday's daft about Rabbi Zera and Rabbi Yirmiya. And Rabbi Zera chastises Rabbi Yirmiya for interrupting the learning in order to daven. He says, how could it be? Why was he chastising him? This is Rabbi Yochanan says, I'm not qualified. I have to stop for davening. So Tosfet gives two reasons. One is, either that it was Toratan Umanatan, they did have that qualification, or there was more time to daven. It wasn't the end of Zman Tefillah. Here, here in the Quran, it sounds like they could opt out of Tefillah entirely. So the Tosav brings a question, we're going to see later on in the Masech, on Daf Lamed Gimel, we have the story of Rabbi Shimba Yochai. The story of Rabbi Shimba Yochai, when he runs away from the Romans and goes to the cave, he wanted to preserve his clothing. So they took off their clothing, and they buried themselves up to their neck in the sand, and then they learned like that. But when he had to get up to Davin, he used to come out of the sand and put on their clothing to Davin. Why was he Davin? Over there, Rabbi Shimba Yochai is the classic example of Torah to Umunato. So Tosav answers here, how Matzli Hanu Kriyachma? That's what he was Davin. He wasn't Davin Shimon Esrei, he was Davin Kriyachma. Which is somewhat difficult because Tosafot and Brachot says when it comes to Matzle, Matzle means either one, Kriyachma or Tefillah. Matzle doesn't necessarily just mean Kriyachma. So Matzle is a generic term for davening, not just for specifically Kriyachma. It's a difficulty in the Tosafot here, but it seems to be that Rabbi Shemayichai himself also did davening. And that might relate to what Shaul is suggesting over here, that this is only when there's sufficient time to do both. Then you postpone Tefillah in order to learn Torah. Baralacha brings down, when we saw the items in the Mishnah, over there, if you started one of these items, you don't have to be mafsik if you have enough time to dive a minchah later in the day, as Tosavot suggested on the Mishnah. That's even if you're going to miss minion, according to the Baralacha. Meaning that if you started one of these items, and you're going to get your haircut, and because of that, you're now going to, you started Beheter, and now you're going to miss Minchah B'tzibor, but you still have time to dive a Minchah later on, might be that you do not have to stop your haircut in order to dive a Minchah B'tzibor, because you're granted the exemption here, based on what the Mishnah says. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it, I don't suggest it, I mean, it's nice to dive with the Tzibor, there are a lot of benefits of diving with the Tzibor, but, Mi'ikor Alocha, it might be that, as long as there's time to dive a Minchah, you're not obligated to stop in order to go to a minute. Vatanya, Kishem Shem of Sikim the Tvila, Kach Em of Sikim the Kriyachma. Although we have a brighter that just like you don't stop for Davin, you don't stop for Kriyachma. Kitane Hahi Bibur Shana. That's a different issue. That's talking about intercalating the calendar. When they have to figure out whether they should have a leap year or not have a leap year, when they sit down for that, then they don't interrupt it at all. 
It's a involved calculation, it's a difficult decision, and they want to have their utmost concentration on it. And therefore, when they go up together, the seven people that get together to make the decision, then they do not interrupt it for any reason. The elders of Agonaya, when we were involved in dealing with the calendar in Yavna, we didn't interrupt for anything. We focused solely on that issue without any interruptions. The tailor should not go out with his needle close to darkness. We'll get to exactly what this means in the Gemara. But as I mentioned before, according to those Rishonim that say the whole reason that this parak began like a dead was because of this Mishnah. This Mishnah is, begins on Arab Shabbat. Starts to talk about issues on Arab Shabbat, not on Shabbat itself. So this parak is the first parak in Shabbat because of this Mishnah. The other two Mishnayot that we had beforehand are... We said either one's introduction, the Tziyot to Shabbat, to tell you that carrying on Shabbat's a problem, because that's what the issue is over here. And the previous Mishnah is similar in the design of the Mishnah. Lo this, lo this, lo this, lo Yeshev Adam, even on Chol, since the formulation of the Mishnah is similar, that Mishnah was also brought. So according to those Rishonim, now we're starting Mesechet Shabbat. This is what was the reason that this is the first parak in Mesechet Shabbat. Which is, lo b'machto, Taylor should not go out with his needle close to darkness. Shema Yishkach Because if he continues during the time that's close to Shabbat, he'll continue, he'll forget about it, and he'll go out with it. Not a scribe with his quill. This is a different issue. A person should not pick out the lice from his clothing. And should not read by candlelight. And that we'll see later on, as Rashi points out, we're afraid, In their day, when you had the oil in the lamp, and you have the wick coming out of the lamp, the more oil that was closer to the wick, it grew, the flame itself got bigger. So in the point where the flame is not big enough, you're reading next to it, or you're trying to do something that needs a discernment, and you want more light, what you're going to do is tip the nair oil dish that's holding the candle in order to increase the flame and the light. If you do that, then you're in violation, according to Rashi, of Mavir on Shabbat. You're causing a fire on Shabbat, and therefore it's problematic. So we say, don't do this because you may come to that. They said, nevertheless, the Chazan himself can check where the children are reading. Rashi brings two interpretations here of what the Chazan is. One could be that he's the Gabai of the Shul, and he needs to know what Parsha they're landing the next day. So what does he do? He goes the night before, and he hears the kids, and checks to where the kids are learning. Because the kids were reviewing the Parsha. So he's allowed to look there, because he doesn't need a lot of light, number one. And number two is that he's not really reading. He's just looking where the beginning and the end, where they're involved. Number two explanation Rashi gives is that the Chazan is the one who teaches the children. Chazan is the Malamei Tinokot. And he's checking out where they're going to start learning tomorrow. Where they're going to begin and end learning. Again, he's not reading where he needs discernment and he's going to be focused on the reading. It's just a quick cursory look at something over there. He's not going to increase the light for that. About who? Lo Yikra. That's the other side of this. That he himself cannot read. In both those cases, whether he is the Gabai, he can't read from there because then it's like anybody else reading. Or if he's the Malamei Tinokot, he's not allowed to read. Even though the Tinokot could read. Even though the children could read. The children could read because they're fearful of their teacher. So they're not going to touch the lamp in front of their teacher. So therefore they can read. But he, who is the teacher, he doesn't have any fear. And therefore he's like any other person. And he might touch the lamp, so therefore he can't read. We have a very similar type of setup. Person who is a Zav cannot eat along with a Zava. Here we're talking about a married couple. The Zav and the Zava should not eat together. Because they might come to sleep together. And a Zava is a Surah. 
in Tashmisha Mita, and therefore we try to create preventative measures so that they will not come to the point where they will end up sleeping together. So it's not Atam. Beryamod Adam Birshuti Yachid, Rabim. A person should not stand in Rishuti Yachid, put his head into the Rishuti Rabim, and drink there. Say the water is found in Rishuti Rabim. There's a water fountain there. You shouldn't stand over there and drink from that side. The opposite is true. You should be standing in Rishut Rabim and stick your head into Rishut Yachid and drink. If he brings the robe of his body as well as head into the other location, then he's fine. Because over there we don't assume he's going to bring the water back. Our fear in the other cases is that he's going to bring the water back to the location which he is in, and that will be carrying. That will be moving from Rishut Yachid to Rishut Rabim or Rishut Rabim to Rishut Yachid. Here, if he brings his whole body over or the rovers by his head, then he knows he's drinking over there, and he's not going to bring it back towards him. Those would ask, wait a minute, don't we have a problem here, which is that, Im Tomar, Hashtunami, Ki Yachnis, Roshovru Bo, Amai Shari, Amai Zimutar, Vakamofik, Rishuti Yachid, Rishuti Rabim. He's moving it from Rishuti Yachid to Rishuti Rabim. Why? Where's the water? The water's in the Rishuti Yachid. Now he's drinking. Shalkeach, Rishuti Yachid, Nachid, Bibit, No. Where does the water settle? In his stomach. Where's his stomach? On the other side. So why isn't that called Akira Vanacha? You're moving out of the Rishut Yachid into where your stomach is in the Rishut Rabim. Tosu says, Yesh Lamar, the Bliato, Hainu Hanacha To. Tosu comes up with a position that swallowing is Hanacha. When you swallow water, that is the Hanacha of the water. And therefore, since your head is on the other side, the Hanacha is taking place whenever the location is that you're drinking it. That may not be a problem because you can't bring it back, right? Although according to Tosavot, Tosavot says it is an issue because it's the water's issue, not just the clea. Right, Rashi is saying the clea. I don't know if he means the clea and the water. I mean that the two come together. Tosavot clearly says the water is an issue, not just the clea. Tosavot then says this is, again, over here, this is authored by Rabbi Meir. And we know, Halacha ke Rabbi Meir, Bigzei Rotav. Tosavot again says this is another exception to the rule. We just saw that back on, remember I showed you that on Ted Amad Aleph. Finds another Gemara here that's explicitly against this Gezerah of Rabbi Meir. And therefore, again, he paskins here against Gezerah to Rabbi Meir, even though normally we would paskin like Rabbi Meir when it comes to Gezerah Tav. And the important statement here is V'chein Begat. The same is true when we're talking about a wine press. So Yibailu, Carmelite Mai. What's the story if it's a Carmelite? Here we're talking about Rishiyot, domains that are deal right, the Torah. What happens if you're talking about a domain Midrabanan? What's the din there? The din's the same. You can't stick your head over and drink because what's the possibility? You're going to bring it. You're going to bring it and you'll be in violation of a din de rabbanan of moving it from the Carmelite to the Shut Yachid, Carmelite to the Shut Rabim. Rav Amar, he gufa gzeira. Vana nikum nigzer gzeira lgzeira. He says, what do you mean? The first place, it's all gzeira. Even when it's in Shut Yachid, Shut Rabim, ikar din, you could drink that way. The problem is not the drinking. The problem is that you might bring the glee back or you might bring the water back over. So that's the issue for here, which means that it's all a gzera. It's all a, a preventative measure that's done by Chazal. On the other hand, so therefore we have a principle, which is that ain't goes rim gzera We don't pile up gzerot. We don't say, well, if that's the case, we're worried about it. And now we have a domain de Rabbanan, which is all because what are we afraid of with domain de Rabbanan is that you're going to think that a karmali is like a Rishut Rabim, and then you're going to come to move from Rishut Yechid to Rishut Rabim. So now if I put the two pieces together, I have two gzerot de Rabbanan, and I'm trying to put them together. Rabbi says we don't do that. So Abayi says we do do it. Now, as Tosfu points out, Abayi only thinks that's true here when we're talking about Hotza'ah. By Hotza'ah, we do stack Gezerot. Abayi in general does not believe that we make Gezerot to Gezerot. It's only true here when we're dealing with Hotza'ah. So Abayi, I mean, I mean a lot. How do I prove that to you? Diktani. 
So that's why we just brought the previous member down. V'chein begat. My gat. What is a wine press? Irishut yachid. If a wine press is a rishut yachid, tanina. It was already mentioned previously. Irishut rabim. If it's a rishut rabim, tanina. We also mentioned, meaning that the Mishnah already mentioned in Erevin, Yamod Adam Bishut Yachid, Bishle Bishut Abim, Bishut Abim, Bishle Bishut Yachid. It mentioned both possibilities. So, Gebechein Begat has to be another possibility, a third possibility. So, obviously, what's the Bible going to say? Gebechein Begat, my God. Elolav Karmelit. It's talking about a Karmelit. So, that's my proof. The Mishnah says that Karmelit is a problem, just like Bishut Yachid and Bishut Abim. And even though Rashi explained back on Chedam and Aleph that a Kli cannot become a Karmelit, the Rabbanat were not goes there in that instance. Over here we're talking something that's Mechubar the Karka, something that's attached to the ground. The presses were embedded in the ground, and therefore they have a shame Rishut, a shame of a domain, not that of a Kli, and that's why it can become a Karmelit. So Rav Amar, V'chein Begat, Lein Yemaser. It's a totally different issue. The Gat is an issue of Maser. V'chein and Rav Sheshin, Rav Sheshin said the same thing, V'chein Begat, when we're talking about the wine presses, the Inyan Maser. Tetnan, Rav Mishnah, both in Erevin and in Masrot, Shotin Alagat. You're allowed to drink from the wine press. Ben Elachamim, Ben Elatzonin. That's whether you make it warm, you dilute it with warm water, or you dilute it with cold water. Upatur, and you do not have to take off Trumot in Masrot. The reason being that the way the wine presses are developed was that there's a large circular area where they actually press the grapes. They press the grapes, either when they stomped on the grapes, they with their, their feet, or they use these heavy beams and loads that they put on top of the grapes to crush the grapes. The wine that came out of there went down a channel. You can see this today. You can, they have uh, many of them around. You can even see them also with the olive presses. They do the same thing, which is that there's a small channel that comes out of that area where they press, and that goes into what's called the bore. The bore is the equivalent of a cistern, which is a lined area that's in the ground, where you collected either, if you're pressing oil, oil over your wine, where you collected the wine. Until it reaches that point, it's not called Gemar Malacha. Gemar Malacha for the pressing of the wine is when it actually reaches into the bore. At that point, if you hit Gemar Malacha, you're Chayav Bon Trumot in Masrot. Chayav Bon because you reach Gemar Malacha, and then for its Asur, not only in Achilat Keva, in taking a real meal, but Achilat Arai. Even a temporary meal, even a snack is problematic. Prior to that point in time, to take off Trumot Masrot, to fish Trumot Masrot, is only if you're Koveya. If you're Koveya Sudanit, meaning that you're making it into something significant. If it's Achilat Arai, then you're not Chayav in Trumot Masrot. So therefore, here, Shotim Alagat, when it's in the press itself, the wine is still in the upper level of the press, then you're allowed to drink it and not take off Trumot Masrot. According to the Tanakama there, that's whether you dilute it with hot water or cold water. Divrei Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Tzadok, Mechayev. says, no, you're Chayav in Trumot Masrot there. If you dilute it in hot water, you're chayav in Shemot Masrot, and the Tzunein, if it's cold water, not. Because you can throw the extra back into the gut. The idea being, if you take the wine out, and then the wine's going to remain out, because that becomes its permanent place. How do I determine that? Whether I'm going to pour it back in. Would you take the wine that you drank and dump it back into the gut? Well, if you dilute it with cold water, you'd have no problem, you'd dump it back into the gut. Because it's no different than that what's in there already. What's in there already is pressed grapes and water, meaning there's liquid in there. The problem with hot water is that it causes fermentation. And the hot water is problematic to dump back into the guts because it causes fermentation or it could make it into vinegar, which would be the, the worst thing that could happen to your wine now. And so nobody would pour hot water back in. And so that's the distinction that they are drawing over here. That the shtiat is only when you're willing to put it back in. 
But if you're not willing to put it back in, then that's not called shtiat right? That's called shtiat keva. That'll become the end. That's the end game for this wine. And therefore you'd have to be mafrish tumot masrod because you won't pour it back because shemi yachmitz because maybe it cause that fermentation to make it into vinegar. So that is what we're talking about here. V'chein begat. What is v'chein begat? Begat is that you can drink from the gat itself. If you lean over to the gat or you take from the gat, you're allowed to drink. So that's v'chein begat. That's the same din. The same din is that as long as you stay over there in the gat, then that's okay in terms of achilat arai. If you're going to take it away and not put it back into the gut, then you already reach the point of Achilat Keva. It's none. Now, this Machok the Bayin Rova, now we bring our Mishnah. So that's why all of this is located over here. Because of this Machok the Bayin Rova, first we brought the first Mishnah that we brought in the Gemara. Now we're going back to our Mishnah. It's Taylor may not go out with his needle close to darkness. Because maybe he'll forget about it and go out. So my love, the Tchuvalo Bibigdo. What is it? He's wearing it. It's stuck in his clothing. Well, if it's stuck in his clothing, it's not the normal way of carrying. And since it's not a normal way of carrying, the only restriction here is a restriction me derabanan. So you have a carrying me derabanan, and yet we have gzera. Don't walk around with it before Shabbat because you might take it out on Shabbat. That would be gzera. The gzera. So he says, "No, the nakile biyade." He's holding it in his hand. Tashma lo yitzay achayim machtoat chuvalo bebigdo. Oh, now we have an explicit bright that says he can't go out with a needle that's in his beged. Now it's not carrying and he's wearing his beged. My love bearer Shabbat. That bright is talking about on Arab Shabbat and that would be exer like zero like a baye. Lo, bishabbat. That's on Shabbat itself. On Shabbat itself, where that only involves one dirabanan, you're not allowed to go out with the needle in the beged because even though it's not the normal way to carry it, nevertheless, because it's considered carrying me dirabanan, you shouldn't go out with it. Erev Shabbat, you may not walk around with it in your hand because you may forget about it, and that will be a problem. But to put the two together will be exera the exera. Fatanyo, but now we have a problem. We have the explicit brayta that says lo So now that's explicit that he can't go out with it in his baguette on Erev Shabbat. So that would look like zero the zero and supported by his position. It says Hamani Rabbi the author of our Mishnah is Rabbi Yehuda. The Amar Uman Derech Umanato Chayav. A craftsman that carries this is the way that the craftsman carries it, he will be chayab. So even though people normally don't go out with needles that are placed in their bigadim, nevertheless, an uman, a craftsman, a tailor, would have the needle. That's how he carries around his needles in his baggage. Since that's the normal way for him, that is classified as carrying for him. A tailor may not go out with a needle that is placed in his clothing. Nagar Bikisem and not a carpenter Bikisem Shenozno. Now Kisem is usually a small splinter. Over here Rashi says it's a sargal, it's a ruler. Some sort of measuring either for a straight line or for the amount, but it's some sort of measuring or straight edge that he's carrying behind his ear. Velosoreik, and not a comer bemishicha with the bozno, with the string around his ear. So in their day here it might be talking about a launderer. In their day, when they wanted to launder the clothing, they used to comb the clothing down to get the dirt out of it. And then they used to stretch it out between poles. They used to hang up the clothing. They used to scrape it down and comb it down. And they used to wash it or beat it down. So over there, he has a cord that he wears around his ear to tie the clothing up that way. Below Gardi, Biiraj goes, no. And not a weaver. Rashi says it's either wool or tzemer geffen or cotton in his ear. So Rashi explains that they used to use the cotton or the tzemer geffen to plug a hole. If he put the, the weaver put the needle through and he doesn't want it to come back out and he wants to finish it up later, he has to plug the area on the other side so it can't reverse itself. It can't come out. 
So he does that by placing the cotton or the wool there that will force the uh, item not to be able to return through the hole that it came in. And a dyer can't go out with a sample around his neck. And a money changer can't go out with the coin that he keeps in his ear or behind his ear that he carries around. If he does go out with it, patur avalasur, which would be an issue de Rabbanan, divrei rabbi meir. Rabbi Yehud Omer, uman derech munato chayav. And uman, if this is the normal way that they carry these items, that's considered to be caring for them, and they're chayav. Shakol adam patur. You're right, for anybody else who does it this way, they'll be patur avalasur, they'll be only issue de Rabbanan. But for craftsmen, this is the way they carry. That's an isur deoraita. Rashi makes a very interesting comment here about these umanim. Why are they carrying their items in this way? So Rashi says, this was early advertising. When they go out to the marketplace, this is what they did. People recognize what craft he does. And they'll hire him. This is a way to advertise what your profession was and people would hire you. This wasn't that they carried the items in that way. This was their way to label themselves as that craftsman. And labeling themselves as that craftsman, people will hire them when they're out in the marketplace. They say, oh wait, I need a weaver, I need a tailor. So that was a way of advertising. It's an interesting perspective that Rashi gives. Tani chada lo Zab, someone who has a, a mission, a Zabi mission, patur, and if he does go out, he's patur valasur, it's only a sudurbanam, but tani yidach, another bride that says, lo yitzei, v'yimetzah chayav chatat, if he goes out, then he is chayav chatat, it's nisudoraita. So the kiss is a pouch, some sort of pouch that a person wears to capture the Zabi mission that's coming out, so that it doesn't dirty his baguette, it doesn't flow all over the place, so he wears this pouch in order to capture the Zabi mission. So the question here is, if he does this, he's not supposed to do it. If he does it, what is he in violation of in Shabbat? We have one bright that says he's only a violation of an Isu de Rabbanan, another bright that says he's in violation of Isu de Oraita. So Rabbi Yosef Lokasha, what's going to be the obvious answer? Ha Rabbi Meir, ha Rabbi Yehuda. We just saw that distinction between Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir thinks that this is an Isu de Rabbanan. Rabbi Yehuda thinks that's an Isu de Oraita. So what, Tzvi looks at me, then courageously, what do you mean? So Amr Le'abai, Imer, the Shmai Le'da Rabbi Meir, B'midei Delav, Hainu Orchei. Rabbi Meir only argued on Rabbi Uda because he thinks that's not the normal way. But maybe the Ainu something that's the normal way to wear it, Mishmaile. Who would say that's only Yisudar Rabbanan? This is normal way. A Zav who's having a mission, he's going to walk out with this pouch to capture the Zavi mission. That's what any Zav would do in this situation. That's a normal way to act. Why would Rabbi Meir say it's only Yisudar Rabbanan? He would agree that's an Yisudar Aita. If you don't say this, Elamiata. Hejot, Shechaka, Kav, Bikat. A regular person, not a craftsman, who hollows out or carves out a kav. A kav is a measuring cup of a kav from a bikat, a log of wood. So he carves out a measuring cup out of the wood. The Shabbat, the Rabbi Meir, Hachanami, the Lomachayev. You're going to suggest that he's not chayab for the Isra Malacha and Shabbat. Why? Because he's not a craftsman. He's not an expert. That doesn't make any sense. It's not just experts that are chayav and Shabbat. It's the Malacha that's the problem. The actual Malacha is the problem, not whether you're an expert or not an expert, or a craftsman or not a craftsman. The Malacha, the activity is problematic. And as long as the activity is a normal activity, you're going to be chayav and Shabbat. So same thing over here. When you carry out the keys of the Zab when he's wearing it, that's going to be chayav. That's a normal way that people wear it. The difference here is kan b'zav b'al riot, kan b'zav b'al gimel riot. Depends on how many emissions he's had. So it says hark back to a little bit to Tarot, Renida, which is that you have a Zab has the possibility of having three emissions. A Zab who has his first emission is classified as the same as someone who is motzi shich zera. 
And then he has too much Erev. He's tamay that day, that day he goes to the mikveh, by that night he's tor. Zav that has two riyot, two emissions. Over there, those two emissions make him into a full-fledged Zav. And that means he has to wait Shiva Nikiim in order to become tor. A Zav that has three emissions, not only does he have to wait Shiva Nikiim in order to become tor, he also has to bring a korban. Skype a korban on the eighth day. So there's a big difference between whether you are a Zav of two emissions or a Zav of three emissions. So the difference will be whether he needs to know if he's already a Zav of three emissions. It's irrelevant to him if he has another emission. He's already a Zav of three emissions. He's at the highest point of a Zav. He has to wait eight days no matter what. He's going to have to wait seven days in the Kiyam and then bring the Korban. If he's a Zav of Shteriot, then he really needs to know whether he has another Riyah. So the pouch is important in capturing the, Z- the Riyah because he needs to know if he has another emission. If he misses the next emission, he won't know if he's a Baal Shteriot. Uh, so the distinction Rabbi Amnuna is saying is, Zav Baal Shteriot will be Chayav. Because he needs to know that he has an emission for his bidika. Azab Balshloshriot will not be Chayam because he's not interested in the capturing of the emission because he doesn't need to know about it. So the Gemara says, wait a minute. What's the difference between a Zab with two emissions? The Chayav. He's Chayav to be violated the bidika because he needs to know if he has a third emission. Azab Balgimel Nami violated the Sphira. A Zab that has three emissions still needs to know when he can start his Shiva Nikim. He cannot start his Shiva Nikim until he stops having emissions. So he needs to know when he stopped having emissions. So it's important to him also. So now, now for that day itself, he already had an emission that day. So it doesn't matter anymore. He, it's not going to change anything. So Gemara says, Doesn't he need it to prevent his clothing from becoming dirty? Fine. He doesn't need to do new for any count. But he needs to know it so that his clothing doesn't become soiled by the emission. Anything that is worn simply to prevent something else from becoming dirty, that is not considered to be significant. As Tosfat notes, even though this is the normal way to do this, anybody who wants to protect their clothing would do it this way. But it's only normal for someone who is going to protect their clothing. That's not considered to be the normal way of carrying it because most people don't need to carry something to protect their clothing. It's not. We have a Mishnah. This is a Mishnah in Machshirim. As the Mishnah has been in Machshirim, it means it has to do with Heksher the Kabbal Tumah. And that is the Torah in Parshat Shmini in Sefer Vayikra tells us in order for food to accept Tumah, it has to first have to be Hukshar. It has to be prepared to be Mekabal Tumah. How does it become Hukshar the Kabbal Tumah? One of the seven Mashkim, one of the seven liquids has to be poured over it, has to come over it. One of the seven liquids has to come over that item, and then it's Muksha the Kabbal Tnuma. So now, the Torah over there says, Ki Itain. Now, when it says Ki Itain, Itain would mean to do something actively. But, over there, the Torah, even though it's spelled Ki Itain, the pronunciation of the Nikudot say Ki Yutan. Yutan is being placed on passively. The Gemara learns from that that it has to be Ki Yutan, Dumya the Ki Itain. That when it happens passively, the hooks the hechsher the kabel tumah, it has to be dumia the kitein. Similar as if you actively put it there. What it means similar? You have to want it. So even if it happens passively, it has to be something that you want. So that's what the gemara is talking about here. This mishnah kofe karala kotel. Someone who puts a bowl on the kotel in bishvil shetudach hakayara. If you want to rinse out the bowl that you're putting up there, harizeh bechiyutan. That qualifies to be water that can now be machshir the kabel tumah because you wanted the water. You wanted the water to wash out the dish. Even though later on when it falls on the fruits or it falls on the food item, you didn't want that to happen. doesn't matter. Since at first you wanted that water, that's enough. You want it so that it protects the wall. You don't want the rain to fall on the wall. That is not considered to be kiyutan because you don't want the water there. You're trying to prevent the water from coming. It says, That's not comparable to our case. 
Over there by the water case, the rain, he doesn't want the water at all. He doesn't want it anywhere near this wall. Here he needs the pouch to collect the emission because he doesn't want it to get all over his clothing. Over there the guy would be just as happy if he didn't have the rain at all, if he didn't get dirty at all. On the other hand, when we're talking about this kis, he needs it there. If he has an emission, he wants the kis there. And for Shabbat, that's considered to be chashuv in terms of hotza'ah. It's a significant item that you are taking out. Because over here with the kli on the wall, you don't really want the water to come. You actually don't even have to flip the kli over. As long as you don't want the water, then it doesn't qualify to be machshir the kabel tumah. The only reason you flip the kli over is to show that you don't want the water. So there is no significance to the water here, as opposed to Shabbat, where we're giving significance to the kis, which is classified as hotza. It says, alodami alodaseifa. That's more similar to the latter half. It's the Mishnah. It's really not the latter half of the Mishnah. It's the next Mishnah, which is areva. If you have a trough, shirad delif the tocha. You have a leak in the house, and you put a trough under there to collect the water. Water that splashes out of the trough or overflows from the trough, that water you don't want. That which is inside of it you want. is not in the Mishnah. That the Gemara is Middayek out of the Mishnah. Clear here that the water that spills out or splashes out you don't want, but that means that the water that inside you do want. And even though the whole purpose of this trough here is to prevent the water from spreading over the house and dirtying the house, despite that fact, the fact that you left the Kli upright to collect the water, gives the water a significance. And the same in our case over here. The fact that you don't want the emission to come, that's fine. But you're wearing the keys, you're wearing the pouch in order to collect the emission. And that gives significance to the pouch, just like the water gains significance here. Even though it's not its primary purpose, because all you're trying to do is prevent the house from being dirtied. Nevertheless, the water is chashuv, so it's over here. Just like you're trying to prevent your begadim from becoming dirty, we still give chashivut or significance to the pouch that you are carrying out. And even though it's not its primary purpose, but still, the water inside you do want. That's the same as our case over here. He wants the emission to be inside of the kis. He doesn't want it to be outside. The difference here in the Brayta is a machlokah to Rabbi Yudah and Rabbi Shimon, which we'll get to later in the Masechta, which is something called malacha she'en tzricha gufa. When you do a malacha, when you do work on Shabbat, that malacha has a specific purpose. And if you do the work for that outcome, for that specific purpose, then you're chayav, because that's called malachat machshevet. If you do the malacha, but it does not have the same purpose as it did in the Mishkan, that's called malacha she'en tzricha gufa. According to Rabbi Yehuda, your chayav achatat. Machashen tzrufa is chayav mina Torah. Now then, Rabbi Shimon says machashen tzrufa gufa is chayav midirabanan. It's only chayav midirabanan. That'll explain it here. The reason that you're carrying the pouch out there is not because you want to carry the pouch. You're carrying the pouch for its protection against the emission coming out and soiling your bigadim. So the purpose of carrying is not to move the object from one place to another. That was the object of carrying in the Mishkan. It's to take an object from here to the other location. Over here, you couldn't care less where the pouch is. The pouch is just there to protect against the soiling of the Beged. And you would have been just as happy if you didn't have an emission not to take this kiss anywhere. You wouldn't have to take it at all. So you're doing a malach of carrying, but the carrying is not for the same purpose it was in the Mishkan, which is to move an item from one location A to location B. It's there to protect your clothing from getting soiled. In that case, what's called a malachash ain srikha de kufa. Over there, we have a machlokat Rabbi Yudah and Rabbi Shimon. That explained the brightot over here. One bright that says, Yerchayah midoraita, that's Rabbi Yudah. Bright that says, Yerchayah midorabanan, that is Rabbi Shimon. Just to give the classic example that the Gemara gives of malachash ain srikha de kufa is if you dig a pit outside. In the 
Mishnah, there's an Isra of Harisha. There's an Isra of working the land, of plowing the land, preparing the land. So if you dig a pit in order to make the land usable, then you're Chayav, either because of Boneh, because of construction, Harisha, because of plowing, whatever you do making the pit for. If you're simply digging the pit from the dirt, you want the dirt that's in the pit. That's a Malachashen Tzricha Gufa. Yes, you're digging a pit. You don't care about the pit. All you care about is the dirt that comes out of it. So over there you have a malacha shein tzricha lagufa. You're not doing it for the purpose that was done in the mishkan, whether it's bone there, whether it's chavisha. You're not doing it for that purpose. You're doing it simply to get the dirt. That's a classic example of malacha shein tzricha lagufa, and similar to what we have over here, we're experiencing over here with the zav. Okay, we'll stop here.